Amen. Well, let's pray one more time together as we uh, enter into a time of studying God's Word. Let's pray together. Ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, Lord, we come before you now, and we are so grateful, Lord, that you have freed us with regards to our sin. Lord, that you have done for us what we can never do for ourselves. That it's only by the merits of Christ that we are justified, that we have peace with God. Lord, and that the things that are all wrong with us are going to be fully put right by the work of your son Jesus on the cross. And Lord, even now we know that you are continuing to transform us and to conform us into the image of your Son. And Lord, we confess to you now, Lord, that we, we feel such a deep inadequacy. As we look at a passage of Scripture like this, all of us feel within, within us the, the words of that hymn, prone to wander, prone to leave the God that we love. Lord, we know that each one of us here has, because of the remnants of indwelling sin, Lord, we each have our trials, our temptations, our shortcomings, our sin that we battle, as Peter says, that wages war against the soul. And so, Father, we ask you for strength. We ask you for your spirit. We ask you for a fresh filling of your spirit to, uh, to make us what you want us to be, Lord, to conform us into Christ-likeness, to be more like our Savior, Jesus, to love the things that He loves and to hate the things that He hates. Please, Lord, we ask that You would do this work in us for Your glory and for the good of Your people, for the good of Your church. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, coming off of last week's sermon, Basically, we are moving in a direction that goes from the battle that is raging uh, within to the battle that is raging all around us. As we see just from the, a quick glimpse from this text that we read today, we go from the, the presence and the power and the nature of indwelling sin to the the, the, the fact that we are in a world, as uh, John is going to go on to say, that is in the lap of the evil one, that is under the influence of the spirit of this age, ultimately the Antichrist spirit. As uh, John says, the whole world lies under the influence, under the lap of the evil one. And that's what he's really talking about here. And so for us, as we've been talking about the nature of spiritual renewal and spiritual growth, really, spiritual, personal, spiritual revival, we come to look at what I really entitled which was spiritual revival in a culture of apathy. Because I really have no other way to sum up the, the culture in which we're living in today, especially in regards to spiritual things. We are now living in a time where as fast and as quick as our culture is changing, one of the things that has resulted is a complete and total spiritual wasteland all around us. I mean, I don't know any other way to sum it up. These things have happened, of course, because our culture here in the West and really all over the place really has no place 
for a biblical, supernatural, revelatory worldview. Instead, what has taken place is that because of the influence of postmodernism and naturalism and anti-supernaturalism, what has happened is that we are now living in a, in a world that is devoid of the supernatural, devoid of the spiritual. And oftentimes when those things are present, they are characterized really by theatrics and really just a, a total exaggeration of what spirituality really is. This has, this has affected the church this idea of naturalism, this anti-supernatural worldview, it is the air that we breathe. We don't even know how deeply embedded we are in that type of consciousness, cultural consciousness. But it has emerged. And what it does is it eliminates God from the equation. Uh, Carl F. Henry uh, wrote many, many years ago, in a volume of books called God, Revelation, and Authority, a volume I recently pulled back out and started reading. If you have not even become aware of who Carl F. Henry is, Carl F. Henry was the founder of Christianity Today, uh, oh, way back in the 50s when it was uh, really, really conservative and theologically substantive and nothing like what it is today. Uh, but Carl F. Henry was a monster scholar. He was, a, uh, uh, he was a, a, a scholar of the first order. His mind was prodigious. His writing was voluminous. His thoughts were penetrating. God, Revelation, and Authority, six volumes, really nothing like it. Um, I won't quote all six volumes to you today. <laughs> I'll just quote a snippet here because I think he gets right to the issue that we are facing today in our culture. This is what he says. He says, the worldview of Western secularism and that of Sino-Soviet communism, which that refers to China and the Soviet Union. He says, both of them acquiesce to the delusion of the real world in order to have an impersonal process and events. He says, this underlying naturalistic reduction dwarfs all their other distinctive concer distinctives concerning nature and history and man. You hear what he's saying there? What he's saying there is that because of naturalism, they have, in essence, eliminated the idea that the world is, a pers is, is involved, is, is, excuse me, is influenced by a personal presence, a personal power, a personal process that the world events that we see around us have to do with the influence of a person, namely God. Carl of Henry continues, Their basic difference lies in the fact that alongside of its atheistic outlook, the communist world clings to the myth of dialectical materialism. That's the idea that two opposing things eventually figure things out on their own. And that an assured, triumphant, and proletariat, that is the rise of the poor class, eventually stabilizing society. Whereas Western secularism has now broken with the myth of evolutionary utopianism. Now that last phrase really hit me because what, what, what Carl F. Henry is saying is that the Western society, in a sense, has seen the bankrupt nature of its own worldview. That that secularism is bankrupt, that evolutionary process will never achieve utopia. But even then, it will not seek after God. It would rather sink down deeper and deeper into the quagmire of postmodernism than to recognize that by uh, 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 elevating naturalism, they have eliminated the personal God of Scripture. 
It is a daunting world that we live in. I was just reading the headlines recently and talking about the rise of technological singularity, where as one article went on to say that as man and machine come closer and closer together, pretty soon we will be the generation that is no longer concerned with what it means to be human. These are daunting times that we're living in. These are really breathtakingly evil times that we're living in. And that's why I'm wondering, how do we, as we look at a postmodern culture, as we look at a culture that is apathetic towards the things of God, and I can tell you that what has resulted from all of that down to the very bare bones of our interaction with our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, students at school, is that people have become completely indifferent. You know, Carl F. Henry was the one that pointed out long ago that because of the invention of the television, children from the earliest ages are set before a talking box where propositional truths are promised and promises are made through propositional uh, statements, but none of them are believed. In other words, it is the influence of the endless marketeering, the endless advertising, the endless promises, the, 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 the weight loss programs, the, you know, the promises that our culture makes, none of which deliver. What happens is that a culture arises that no longer has the capacity to listen to propositional truth and to even care when propositional statements are being made. That's why when I talk to a college student, sometimes I feel like I'm talking to a dead person. In one ear, out the other, with a very hard time even looking me in the eye. That's what we're dealing with today. So the question arises, how do we as believers, how do we flourish in the context of such a sinful world? There are several things that need to take place in order for that to happen. Number one, spiritual revival, and I'm going with that word revival to speak of personal renewal, personal growth, personal revival, can only take place when we understand the godless direction of the world and seek to run contrary to that direction. So first, we need to define very carefully, when John says, do not love the world, what does he mean? The Greek word cosmos, if you know anything about the etymology of that word, in the word of God, it has all sorts of different definitions. It can mean all sorts of things. Cosmos can be used to refer to the universe. It can be used to refer to mankind. It can be used to refer uh, to planet Earth. It can be used to refer to a society at large. You remember when Jesus was going through Jerusalem, the Pharisees said, look, the entire cosmos has gone after him. Everyone is following him. So it's used in those euphemistic ways as well. But when John says here, do not love the world, what does he mean? Well, of course, you know from Scripture that it also means something like the evil world system. And I think that's really what is going on. That's what's afoot here in this text. It's referring to the evil world system and what is going on. So we better be very cognizant of what is the evil world system? What is it like? What is it about? Uh, what is it made up of? And so let me just tell you what the way that I would give you a comprehensive definition of the world. Because... I think maybe it's important for us 
as we define what is the world to maybe begin by saying, what is, what is it not? <laughs> so when John says, do not love the world, what is he not saying? Well, I would say this, loving the world does not mean loving nature. It does not mean loving humanity. It does not mean loving recreation or sports or entertainment necessarily. Music, art, media, technology, material possessions. That's not necessarily what is involved in the term world. Indeed, if you look at Scripture, we are told to enjoy the grace of life in this world. You look at the life of Job. The ending of Job tells us that it was in this life that God blessed Job's latter end compared to his former end. We are told in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, that we are to pursue the grace of life with our spouse. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, we are to look for how can we have a good life, see good days. In other words, how can we be blessed in this place? So it's not as if this is a wholesale rejection of the human experience in this life. It is not. It is not. In other words, there's a sense in which it is true. We can enjoy all of life to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Jesus does not tell us be anxious for nothing because he aims to take everything away from us. No, in fact, Jesus goes on to say there in Matthew chapter 6, verse 32, the Father knows that you have need of all these things. Christianity is not a vow of poverty, in other words. The rich are not told in 1 Timothy chapter 6 to give away their business, to give away their money, but they are exhorted to conduct themselves in a certain way, to be generous, to share. So the world, and I'll come back to that point there as we talk about what it is not, come back to that in a second, but the world in this context, here's the way I would define it. It refers to the basic philosophy and worldview of the evil system of mankind, consisting of all of its godless values, ethics, perspectives, convictions, ambitions, motives, and lifestyles. lifestyles. Those lifestyles, by the way, are getting out of control, are they not? I just read an article that was so heartbreaking. It was about a liberal family who is now encouraging their six-year-old um, to dress in drag and encouraging their child to experiment with its, his gender fluidity. And this is how depraved our culture is getting. That's why spirituality is serious business. That's why, uh, as many have said, the Christian life cannot be lived in neutral. We're not called to coast and just imbibe and take in things passively. Everything about the Christian life is action, sobriety, seriousness, engagement. Nothing about, the, the, the Bible knows nothing about a passive, superficial, shallow sort of live and let live attitude in your Christian life? Absolutely not. What part of a lion don't you fear? Remember, I was at a wedding once, and it was held in a really beautiful place, and they had lions in cages at this place. And you know what? I didn't want to come 50 feet near that lion. <laughs> well, that fence is going to keep that... I don't know. 
And it roared, and I thought, that roar, I thought, I'm not getting anywhere near that lion. The Bible says that there is a lion that's going around seeking who he may devour, right? And so our lives are put on alert. We are supposed to be cognizant of the dangers that are all around us. So let me return back to just those amoral things, meaning those things that are not necessarily evil that are in the world. As we go one by one in this church, start naming your hobby, your activity, your leisure, the way you spend your life. Not necessarily evil. Some of you like to exercise. You like to work out. You like to ride a bike. You like to go fishing. You like to play a video game. You like to whatever. Some of you hate video games. I think that's good. That's, video games can... Video games can ruin your life. But so can anything else. This is what I'm saying. It's not as if music is evil in and of itself. But if music is not done for the glory of God and becomes the idol and it takes the priority in a person's life without God, then that thing becomes an idol in your life. I knew a gentleman who had to lay down his guitar because for 15 years of his life, he practiced for 15 hours a day, and he became the best musician I've ever personally seen. He can hear a classical tune and play it right back to you. It's amazing. It's prodigious. It's, uh, it's fascinating. And you know what? For him, it became idolatrous. Not that there's anything evil in the guitar itself, but that guitar was taking him away from Christ taking his time, taking his priorities, making it difficult for him to be a good husband, a good father, and he had to lay it down for the glory of God. Anything around us can do this to us if we allow it. And again, I come back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. Now, I quote this not because we have millionaires in our church, well, I don't know, I, know, I don't know any, everybody in this church today. Maybe you are. But in my estimation, you are rich. You are rich. If you live in America, if you live in Frisco, if you live in North Texas, according to the standard of the world, you're doing pretty well. You don't got to be a millionaire to be conceited. But notice what Paul says. He says, Instruct them not to be conceited or to fix their hope. That's the key. Do not fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Now, you can plug anything you want into that verse. Do not fix your hope in the uncertainty of health, in the uncertainty of employment, in the uncertainty of career, of education of entertainment. You can put whatever aspect of life right into that verse so that you can understand the manner in which God would have us to hold these things. It's not just important to define what the world is and what the world is not, but notice what John says here, back at 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. We don't just define the world. My dear friends, we are called to resist the world. He says, do not love the world, nor the things of the world. Remember, properly defined as the 
Whatever is godless, whatever is sinful, whatever is part of the present evil age, do not be loving the world and the things of this world. Don't love the system of the world and don't love the things that belong to that system. Don't cling to anything that could cause you to stumble. This is a call to live counterculturally, to resist sensuality, to cut off carnality and lawlessness in a definitive way. This is John saying, you need to make a break once for all with the world. If we do not resist, listen to this, we will reciprocate. If we do not resist the world, we will reciprocate the world's advertisements to us and its allurements. It will get its hooks into us. So much so, Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. So this very much has to do with allegiance. Jesus demands of us absolute allegiance to his lordship. Can't serve two masters. This does not only result in divided loyalties, but it also results in a divided identity. James says that we can, if we give in to the lust of the flesh, to use John's words, we can become self-deluded. We can forget the word of God and the fact that we were forgiven of our sins. We, in other words, you can forget who you are in Christ. The reality is, is our whole life as a Christian is based on resisting the world. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, because it not only... It not only has to do with our present context, but it began at regeneration. This resistance began upon our regeneration of being taken out of the world, put into Christ, and been given new life. Such a powerful verse. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. You know this verse. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, he says, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. And he says, he says, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions he made us alive together with christ by grace you have been saved and what's the result verse 10 we are his workmanship created in christ jesus in other words it's a new genesis day for us a new beginning in christ and he says for good works that God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. That moves me to Romans 12. Go to Romans chapter 12. It begins with regeneration, but it is also resisting the world is something that has to be maintained throughout our sanctification in this life. I'm giving you a lot of familiar texts here. This is precisely what Paul is talking about. Look at Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living, sacri- living and holy sacrifice. And when he says there, present your bodies, that is a reference to the totality of who you are. All of life, 
He says, it is as acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world. There's the resistance. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is the will of God. What is God's will? I mean, King James is kicking in here. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. You see that? So much you can invert this verse and teach it backwards. If you want to know what is good and perfect and acceptable in the sight of God, you will not know it and you will not do it if you are being conformed to this world. Biblical resistance, therefore, is an unwillingness to conform to the world's standards, the world's trends and fashions and traditions, especially when those things are sinful and contrary to God's revealed will. This is not going to be easy, though, is it? No, in fact, Scripture, I would say, would say that this is going to entail serious spiritual warfare. Uh, you may uh, undergo warfare at the hands of your fellow brethren. As you begin to say, for me, uh, just like that brother with the guitar, for me, um, this thing is not edifying for me anymore. It is a weight, it's slowing me down, and it's darn near on the brink of making me sinful. And you begin to unload weights and entanglements. And, very quickly, those around you in the church can accuse you of becoming legalistic, extreme, overboard, fundamentalist, all of that. But the Bible says this is going to include a lot of spiritual warfare. As a matter of fact, the idea of resisting the world and resisting the devil is virtually inseparable. Let me just give you some quick verses on this. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. James chapter 4, verse 7. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's after he indicts the church, James that is, of being worldly, right? of being adulterous. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, this is a big one. Be sober of spirit. Be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith. You see that? This leads us to the second thing, and that is really the particulars it's important for us to see John's emphasis here on the word love. I think that's so crucial. Back at 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, he says, Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the, love, loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Love, love, love. Isn't that amazing? Very serious. And what it reveals is that the reality is, is that love for the world, love for God, are completely, absolutely unqualifyingly antithetical, incompatible. These are polar opposites. And they cannot go together. Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You will either hate the one and love, there's the word again, love the other. I remember having a conversation with a pastor friend of mine, and I was standing next to him, and a gentleman 
brother came up that we hadn't seen in quite a while, and I remember this person saying, how you been, and then more importantly, how are you doing in the Lord these days? And his immediate response, and I was a bit shocked, but his immediate response was, I've actually been really focusing on my business, and I've been doing actually very well. Uh, actually, been my company's making a lot of money right now, and uh, he must have used the word money three or four times in about two minutes. And this pastor friend of mine said, basically what you've told me is that you hate God and you despise him. And he goes, what? I haven't even mentioned God. He said, exactly. All you've talked about is how much money you're making and how well your business is doing and how much you're prospering, right? Jesus said, you will be devoted to the one and what? Despise the other. In other words, this is the nature of sanctification. This is the nature of spiritual the spiritual forces that are at work here. When we love the world, we must by necessity also engage in an act of despising and hating God. I told you about the book of John. John is a black and white author. He doesn't speak in nuanced ways. <laughs> Anyone who practices sin is not from God. <laughs> wow. If you, if you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. Black and white. There is darkness. There is light. There is truth. There is error. There is heresy. And there is orthodoxy for John. And saying, wow, that's really, that's really brutal. That's a bit uh, staunch, isn't it? You know, amazingly, John is known as the apostle of love. <laughs> that doesn't work in, a, in our postmodern culture of tolerance to speak in absolute terms, right? And so it's important for us to understand what is in the world, the fact that if we don't resist the world, we will reciprocate what the world sets in front of us. And so we have to come to him humbly, acknowledging that what it requires is for us to keep ourselves in the love of God. That's what Jude says, Jude 20 says, you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the, in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. You ever contemplated that? You ever wondered, what does Jude mean by that? Keep yourself in the love of God. It means you'd be, better be cultivating those spiritual disciplines. It means you better keep love to the unseen Christ alive and fresh in your heart. It means that you had better rekindle your affections continuously, daily, freshly rekindling your affections for the triune God. It is a call to communion with God. It is a call to fellowship with Jesus Christ. Here's the third thing. Spiritual revival also can only take place when we redeem the sinful ambitions and impulses of the world and use them for the glory of God. Now, I use the word redeem because if you go back with me to 1 John, you will see here that he says here in verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust, see that word, lust, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, I use the word here, 
uh, to redeem because the word lust is the Greek word epithumia, which just simply means strong desire, strong longing. And it can be used in two ways, positively and negatively. You can use it for holy things, godly things, righteous things, or you can use it, as you're seeing here, for unbiblical things, ungodly things, evil things, sinful things. So, for example, Philippians 1.23, the Apostle Paul says, I desire, I epithumia, to use the language of John, I lust for, I long for to be with Christ. Epithumia. And at the same time, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3, Peter tells us, do not, do not live in the lust of the Gentiles. As he, and then he begins to list all of their ungodly cravings. And so we need to, instead of lust for the flesh, we need to long for spiritual things. As 1 Peter 2, uh, verse 2 says, we need to long for the pure milk of the word of God. That's where our sustenance comes from. It's not, remember I told you last week that the ultimate ethic begins with a positive, not a negative. It begins with, it begins with being filled with the Spirit. It begins by loving. It begins by setting the Lord ever before you. And I'm thinking here, of course, of Galatians chapter 5 where we looked at last time, but he says, walk by the Spirit and you will not. So the negative doesn't come, after, doesn't come until the positive is firmly grasped and understood. If you love God, guess what? You will not love the things of the world. Because as Romans 13.10 tells us, love does no wrong. If you are longing for spiritual things, you, will, you, you are going to starve out the flesh. And you're not going to feed the flesh. Instead of lust of the eyes, we should look upon spiritual things with the eyes of our heart. Meditating and fantasizing about Christ and His work, His righteousness, His work on the cross, His death, resurrection. That is the only thing that will keep us from lusting with our eyes after sinful things, sexual things, covetous things materialistic things. Instead of the boastful pride of life, of course, Scripture tells us, boast only in the Lord. These things are in total antithesis to one another. Martin Lloyd-Jones. If you do not read Martin Lloyd-Jones, you ought to. One of the reasons why many people don't know, why read Lloyd-Jones? What makes Lloyd-Jones so special? Is it because he's so uh, scholarly? Well, no, he was scholarly, but that's not why. There are many more technical scholars that you can read. But the reason why it's important for Americans in this generation to read Lloyd-Jones is because if you know anything about the doctor, because that was his nickname, he was a doctor, and then he became a preacher. He let go of medicine so that he can go into ministry. But the reason why you want to read the doctor is because the doctor was preaching these kinds of words in the quagmire of the existentialism that London and Europe was going through during his generation. He rose up like a prophet in the desert out of the wasteland of relativism and began to preach the Word of God, and God did extraordinary revival. Big R, not personal R. 
And so Lloyd-Jones is precious to us because he shows us this is biblical faithfulness when we get as liberal as Europe. (laughs) We're not quite there yet, I don't think, as America, but we're getting there. We're getting there. So much so, I mean, Albert Moeller said we are now living in a post-Christian America. Post-Christian. But we really are called to live differently. This is what Lloyd-Jones said. Christians have an entirely different concept of all these things. Talking about what is in the world. He says, the birth that Christians know is the rebirth, not the natural birth. The wealth that they are interested in is the wealth of the riches of His glory. He says, the knowledge that we aspire after is not human knowledge. In other words, it's not human learning, but the knowledge of God. He says, the association that they are proud of is not that which you mind in the noble circles. It is the people of God. It is the Christian church, the saints, however lowly or humble they may by chance be. The honor that they crave is not the honor of a great name amongst men, but the honor of being known by God and of anticipating the day when they will hear the blessed words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. And the reason why Matthew 25, 21 is so important is because it's eschatological in nature, which means your life is a race. And the race that you want to culminate is not cutting the ribbon. It's hearing the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. That's what we want to hear. Finally, there's a final aspect to this. Go back to 1 John. Notice how deeply theologically conscious John is here. The wor- how he describes the world. Verse 17. The world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. In other words, for John... The only way that spiritual revival can take place is if we see that the goal of life is to be sought in the transcendent, not in the transient. In the eternal, not in the temporal. In the heavenly, not in the earthly. This is so big. Scripture tells us, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You see, okay, in real time, How do I live this out? Sounds great when you're preaching it, but what do I do with it, right? And it has everything to do with a perspective. It has everything to do with a worldview, with with the way that you view everything around you. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 29, and I really commit this passage to you. Uh, I'm going to tell you what I think it means, but amazing language here by the Apostle Paul. He says, but this I say, brethren, brethren, the time has been shortened. That's an amazing reference. And what he's talking about there is not that, you know, your watch is going to go faster. <laughs> That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is that by the coming of Jesus Christ, the ages are reaching their climax. In other words, we're coming to the very end of it now. And he says, so that from now on, now that God has revealed the final part of his eschatological plan, He's saying, from now on, those who have wives, anybody in here qualify for that? Should be as though they had none. 
Okay, we got to be very responsible with this verse. <laughs> what that's saying is a perspective. Now, I think it explains it away. Look, it explains it out for us. Look at verse 30. And those who weep as though they did not weep, and those that rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy. Any of you like to purchase things? I tell you, on Saturday, ugh. You can't get around anywhere around here. It's so packed out. People are out buying and selling. It's just consumerism everywhere. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the Watch this. For the form of this world is passing away. Same principle that John ends his section on here. The world is passing away. In other words, folks, when we walk out the back doors of this church and into this world, you are looking at a world that is fading away. You only need your body to remind you of that, be honest. If you wake up with as many aches and pains as I do, you know you're passing away. You know the outer man is perishing. You know the world around you is wasting away. And the world is trying to do everything that it can to figure out how to not waste the way. Futurist Ray Kurzweil um, said in an in a article for his uh, futuristic uh, college that he's at school that he has, that he is going to invent, listen to this, Ray Kurzweil, the futurist, he comes out on TED Talks and does all this stuff. He said he's going to invent these macro or micro robots, nanobots, and he's going to inject them into your body, and they're going to be as small as cells, and they're going to float around in your bloodstream, and they're going to kill cancer. He said it'll probably happen in about 200 years from now. He's not going to be here to see that, but here's the problem. Man, no matter what he contrives, he, the Bible says he will not live for. It is appointed under Ray Kurzweil to die once and then the judgment. I don't care what kind of nanobot you create. It's not going to keep your body from deteriorating. But this is man in his madness trying to cling to this world as much as possible because as we started out, they have removed the personal God. The only thing that is left is an impersonal universe. And guess what? A deep, haunting sense of meaningless has set into the culture. We don't know why we're here. We don't know what our purpose is. We don't know what life is about. So many people have come to that. You've heard Kirk Cameron's testimony. He was a teen idol. There he was on the cover of Teen Magazine, driving around in his Ferrari, the streets of Hollywood and Beverly Hills. Got the top down. He's feeling pretty good about himself. He pulls over to the side of the road and he realizes, I have no purpose. I've reached everything I wanted to do and my life is meaningless. Think about that. Thankfully, he came to Christ. And now he has total meaning making corny Christian movies. Don't tell him I said that. <laughs> this is a guy that... <laughs> Can we... Anyway, strike that from the record. 
It's okay to be corny as long as you're in Christ, you know. But that just shows us we are, we so desperately need to identify not with this evil world system that's fading away, but what makes for eternal life. Do the will of God. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. In other words, i rather starve and do God's will than live in abundance and be disobedient. It's that simple. If we have that in our heart, then we know we have this promise. The one who does the will of God lives forever. Ray Kurzweil, you're looking for eternal life. You're not going to find it in a, mag, in, a, in a nanobot. You're going to find it in Jesus Christ and in what he did on the cross. Amen? Father, Lord, we confess openly to you now that there is far too much love of the world in every heart in this place and that as difficult as it is, Lord, we confess that we need a greater, more urgent heavenly-mindedness that we need a greater eternal perspective, one that we presently do not have, one that would liberate us from the bondage of needing to identify with a, with a dying and fading in a world that's passing away. And so, Lord, we need you to continue to sanctify us, to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ, which means that we become like the person who clung the least to this world and who was fixed on the glory that would follow the shame and the suffering. And so, Father, help us to fix our hope on the glory that will follow the shame and the suffering. In Jesus' name, amen.